a good morning to you once again, Trinidad and Tobago. It is Human Impact on Freedom 106.5 FM. My name is Tosca Martinez, and I'm with you until 12 o'clock. And right now, I would like to start a session here with you as we talk about heart health and in celebration of World Heart Day, World Heart Day, we have Dr. Naveen Sicharan. He's online with us. Dr. Citron is currently an American Board of International Internal Medicine Certified Interventional Cardiologist and Clinical Lead of the Cath Lab at the Eric Williams Medical Sciences Complex. He his postgraduate training included being a Chief Interventional and Structural Fellow at the University of Vermont Medical Center and Chief Medical Resident at the University of Florida. He has also completed a master's in clinical trials at the University of London. Currently, he is a lecturer, tenured and above bar in adult medicine at his alma mater, the University of the West Indies, St. Augustine. He has over 50 publications in several prestigious cardiology journals, such as the JACC, JACC Interventions, Circulation Interventions, Thrombosis and Heart. He has also been inducted as a fellow of the American College of Physicians, Royal College of Physicians, American College of Cardio Cardiology, and European Society of Cardiology, and the Society of Cardiac Angiography and Interventions. So he is very qualified to talk about heart health, and we welcome you to Freedom 106.5 FM, Doctor. I get it. Afternoon, everyone. Good morning, actually, everyone. Uh, thank you for Tuska for that wonderful introduction. I hope the listening audience can hear me okay and there are not any technical issues. Nope. We're loud and so, clear. Excellent. So I'm very happy and pleased to be here. And I'm, look, I'm looking forward to today's uh, discussion on heart health, uh, seeing that it's an auspicious day, uh, World Heart Day 2023. So thank you. All right, so one of my first questions, um, to start on a positive note, because I know that we're going to go into all of the things that can go wrong with the heart just now. I wanted to start with, how can I improve my heart health if I already know some of the problems? Okay, so it's a very good question. Uh, unfortunately, it's not something that we are very particularly good at, especially here in Trinidad and Tobago. But um, there are a couple of simple statistics. So uh, I can preface it by saying that um, currently in the world, there are about 200 million people living with heart disease. And on average, there are about 20 million deaths annually every year. And that number is projected to upscale to about 30 million in the year 2030. Um, interestingly enough, most of these deaths are preventable. Some experts and societies uh, say that about 80% of these deaths are actually preventable um, because they are, you know, lifestyle diseases. So they're considered non-communicable diseases and they're obviously worsened or accelerated by having or adopting poor lifestyle habits. So it's something that we really need to focus on, improve health delivery and knowledge, awareness, uh, the term that we use right now, it's called cardiovascular literacy uh, to improve these numbers because as you can expect, based on those numbers, a delusional avalanche of heart disease is coming further down the pipe. 
So in other words, we are not that cognizant about heart health, seeing as the numbers are so high. We need more um, talks like these to bring the attention to that. Right. And, you know, this is uh, a little bit of a bugbear for most of the cardiologists uh, internationally. Um, there's a lot of focus on other disease conditions, such as, for example, cancers, respiratory illnesses, for example, HIV. But it's a little known fact that the number of uh, deaths annually, which is approximately 20 million, encompasses and supersedes that of the other three conditions combined. Mm. So, for example, respiratory illnesses, they account for about 10 million deaths, uh, strokes, a uh, little less than that, and HIV, 1 million deaths. Cancers, approximately 10 million deaths. So those conditions combined, uh, they're still uh, in the minority compared to cardiovascular disease and mortality. Uh, so we always think that, you know, being um, healthcare practitioners in the field, that heart disease is often underestimated and not represented well enough in, for example, social media, uh, uh, generally across the board. Uh, and, and if it is that we, uh, well, I don't want to say scared stiff by the discussions that we're having about heart health, what are some of the uh, tests that I can order from my doctor to see how far gone or if I do have a heart problem? Okay, so that's that's a pretty good uh, question, and then we'll probably veer off into preventative medicine uh, soon after that. But let me mm -hmm. address this question quickly. So there are some routine blood tests that uh, that you can get. I think uh, generally you have to assess your risk factor profile, and uh, the simple test includes, you know, often looking at a glycosylated hemoglobin, which is assess your diabetes, um, as also fasting lipid panel. Uh, so those are some routine blood tests. There are also some inflammatory markers you can look at to see if you had an elevated or marked risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, so that's probably the first phase. The second phase involves a little bit more invasive testing. So, for example, you can get a 12-lead electrocardiogram, which uh, members of the lay, uh, public would know or recognize. It looks like pink graph paper with the squiggly lines. Mm -hmm. uh, so those squiggly lines are really electrical vectors and represent the electrical activity of the heart um, in certain conditions, such as heart attacks. Uh, these vectors can be abnormal and it can show up on an ECG. I think it's important to recognize the caveats and uh, the issues with a lot of these tests. They aren't 100% foolproof. For example, an ECG is really thought to be about 70% accurate. After the ECG or 12 lead EKG, as they sometimes call it uh, in other parts of the world, you can escalate to something called an echocardiogram. An echocardiogram is an acoustic sound wave test of your heart, so there are no needles, there's no sticking um, of that sort. It's just really sound waves that are basically penetrate the chest wall, and when they return to the transducer machine, you can get a picture. And this can tell you a lot about the heart. It can let you look at about the heart function, the structure and the function of the heart valves, which are also an important entity in the heart, as well as the internal pressures in the heart. Um, so roughly, you know, the blood tests are on the order of a couple hundred dollars. The ECG is usually two to three hundred dollars uh, generally, and an echocardiogram really runs a patient about seven to eight hundred dollars in most places, most parts of the island. Okay, I, I was then now about get... to I was now about to clarify if we're talking in US or TT. So it's eight hundred TT. Oh, oh. 
those kind of numbers, right? <laughs> yes, those are TT dollars. Right. Yes, that is correct. Okay, please do continue. Okay, so then after that, uh, you know, it's a tiered system. So after that, you have stress testing, of which are numerous subtypes. Uh, some are available intranet, some are not. The more advanced ones involving radiation and nuclear tracers, they're uh, most available in the U.S. and uh, in Europe. Uh, whereas we have uh, the simpler versions, but are still effective and accurate. So the next test we would typically do would be something called a stress test or an ex exercise stress echocardiogram. And those are typically range between $1,000 to two to 3000 TT dollars. Uh, they're fairly accurate. So as you basically go up the ladder, uh, there's basically increased cost, but also an increased accuracy of establishing or ascertaining a diagnosis of heart disease. So those tests that I just uh, aforementioned, they're usually about 88 to 92% accurate. Accurate, And then after, basically, generally, at the end, there are a couple additional tests, but the main one that most patients may have heard about is a coronary angiogram. Mm -hmm. And a coronary angiogram, which we'll probably discuss a bit further, but I'll stop or pause here for any questions. Uh, well, I was now about to um, ask, could we forego the uh, test that you called before and go directly to the angiogram? Or is it that you have to go through these levels of tests before you get to this particular test? Okay, so, so that's a good question, and it's a really individualized approach. So, uh, for example, uh, most cardiologists that you speak to, of which there are about roughly about 20 in Trinidad, 19 to 20, uh, everyone has their own specific practice pattern. Mm -hmm. um, however, uh, I would suggest, you know, uh, it makes sense to do due diligence and due process in terms of carrying out the specific tests uh, chronologically. And that way, you know, you can build trust with the patient and establish, you know, a management plan or strategy mm -hmm. that culminates in the final test. So I think, you know, there are certain cases where you would go directly to an angiogram, but I think sometimes it's important to do the intermediate steps. Uh, you know, there's a common adage, you know, you know, you have to learn to crawl before you can run. Yes. So I think it makes a lot of sense to really go through the blocks before you jump directly to the end test. Well, the reason why I ask this is because um, many people will look at the prices and the bill that you may have to go through or incur by doing each test chronologically that um, you say, well, all right, let me just go to the last test and done. So I wanted to clarify that it is, there is a method to the madness, basically. Oh, definitely. So there, there are specific algorithms and pathways that, you know, cardiologists would have to uh, follow. Mm -hmm. um, but for example... Uh, I may have failed to mention this initially, but a coronary angiogram is an expensive test. It's about 12,000 TT dollars. So wow. to get to there, wow. you know, sometimes it pays off to do the simpler, less expensive, uh, non-invasive tests. Mm -hmm. And there's also a lot of risk that is um, imbued with a coronary angiogram, um, of which we can detail further. But, you know, so it's, it's a little bit of a risk-benefit analysis. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, with the economic times that we're in, you have to think which of these tests can grant you uh, the biggest bang for your buck. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's inevitable and you would eventually require the coronary angiogram. And I guess, that, uh, that, I, sorry, that will come from watching your symptoms and understanding your history 
etc. Right. So basically, when you go through the sequence of tests, uh, they would lead, uh, you know, it would elevate your clinical suspicion and your clinical acumen into thinking that, okay, there is something wrong that is going on with the heart. So, for example, you do your basic or your routine lab investigations, which are your blood tests. Then you do the electrocardiogram or the EKG. You see some abnormalities there. You do your echocardiogram. You might see your heart function reduced or there's an abnormal valve uh, or a certain type of dysfunction with a certain valve. And then, you know, you may proceed to coronary angiogram. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, log logistically, it makes sense to do it in sequence. But, for example, in certain cases, such as if you're having a severe active heart attack, you may go to a coronary angiogram as the initial test because, you know, um, the urgency and the extreme uh, nature of that condition, because it's life-threatening and there's a high risk of fatality, mm -hmm. you have to escalate straight to that final test, so, so to say. So just to give reference, like if uh, I'm thinking of the TV show, you know, when you clasp in your chest and your shortness of breath and you need to get to the hospital, that would be the... Uh, tests that they perform in the emergency room because you're already actively, uh, at least suspected actively in a heart attack sequence, right? Uh, generally, I would say yes. So, mm -hmm. for example, uh, when somebody's experiencing uh, chest pain that's related to the heart, it's also known as angina. It's mm -hmm. um, Sometimes uh, patients may have heard that term. Sometimes they may not have heard that term before. Uh, they would obviously seek help at the emergency department um, when they come in. You know, depending on it, uh, we would, you know, everything kind of happens simultaneously. So, for example, we call that the inpatient setting or the hospital setting. They come in, we would draw the blood. There's a medical team, a multidisciplinary team with junior staff, uh, intermediates, and then obviously the senior staff. Uh, one would do the blood draw looking for, you know, your routine work. Someone would do an ECG at the same time then the senior doctors may do a bedside echocardiogram. And then if it really meets all the criteria for severe heart attack, then we would proceed immediately to the coronary angiography suite or the cath lab. Mm -hmm. That's the nickname. It's the cardiac catheterization laboratory. Um, for example, there, there are two at Mount Hope. And we would proceed then with doing an invasive test to look for these blockages which would have triggered this whole process. Heart blockages. That's intense. That is really intense. The order in which. All right. Um, for someone who is uh, uh, proactive, can you let us know what the blood pressure readings, what is the ideal blood pressure reading um, in terms of uh, knowing if you're close to a heart attack or stroke? What, what are the numbers? What are the best numbers to know? Okay, sure. So that's a really good question. So there are multiple risk factors. and the, These are considered the traditional conventional cardiac risk factors. And these factors pretty much culminate in a blockage of the coronary arteries, also known as a coronary stenosis. So I'm sure that all of us here may have had family members or friends who've had multiple blockages. They've had 100% blockages, 90% blockages, thereabouts, and so forth. And uh, the risk factors that... Um, comprise or lead to basically this end outcome of coronary artery blockages of blood pressure, right? Hypertension, uh, as it's known formally or colloquially as high blood pressure, 
within the population. And basically, a healthy blood pressure that would aim for cardiac patient would be, uh, let's say, about 120, top number, systolic, mm-hmm. over 80, the diastolic or bottom number. So 120 on 80. Ideally, in certain risk groups, you would aim for even less. You'd aim for 110 on 70. So I have a lot of patients that would come to me and, you know, they, they don't know these simple numbers because, as I mentioned, cardiovascular literacy is suboptimal in this country. So we would basically, I would see a patient with the, the team and they'd be, Doc, you know, my pressures are good. It's 130, 140. Mm. So even though they think that they are being well controlled, the truth and in fact is with respect to their heart health or cardiovascular health, it is um, suboptimal. So as I said, 110 to 120 over 70 to 80 for the blood pressure. Uh, cholesterol, if we delve into cholesterol and we pass through the data, the scientific studies now show that, you know, um, not everyone has the same type of cholesterol levels uh, with respect to certain racial ethnicities and subpopulations. So, for example, a lot of the values that we focus on or try to achieve are based on Caucasian populations that were really set by the veterans in the United States um, Army. Um, so, for example, of, of course, a Caucasian person would be uh, completely different to another ethnicity in terms of their biochemistry and their physiology. So, the a lot of the scientific studies show that the bad cholesterol, also known as low-density lipoprotein, uh, should be as low as 40 milligrams per deciliter, which is pretty low. Um, if, within the last decade, it's been a moving target. Initially, it was less than 130. Then it was, became less than 100. If you were diabetic, it should have been less than 70. But now we're moving the, the target, uh, the lower the better. So some high-risk patients, of which we have many in Trinidad, and we'll speak to that further, we should aim for bad cholesterol level of less than 70, between 40 and 70. So sometimes I get patients and they're shocked. Again, similar like to the blood pressure, they're like, but doc, isn't that too low? Um, And it's something that's not really being covered enough maybe in the media or the doctors and the healthcare teams aren't doing a good job at apprising patients of this new information that's coming out. But again, you know, for example, we see patients and they come and they're like, oh, my cholesterol isn't bad. And their numbers over 200, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes 300. And those numbers should really be less than 70. And as I mentioned, in some high risk groups, 40 to 50. All right. Those are patients who've had prior stents, who've had prior bypasses, who've had repeated heart attacks or recurrent events. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, another aspect we could look at is uh, obesity. And, you know, there have been a lot of um, research in Trinidad showing that we have a high rate of childhood obesity. You know, I've, I've seen some studies done by the pediatricians and endocrinologists showing that, you know, we are, are hovering over 50% of childhood obesity. And those are really damning statistics uh, concerning that, you know, this will culminate in a large, uh, you know, it's it's basically going to be such an issue for us in the coming years it's looming uh on the horizon that it's something we'll have to deal with because once you have obesity you have all these terrible diseases that are afflicted with it for example you get increased rates of hypertension diabetes uh, dyslipidemia which is the medical word for cholesterol and so forth you know and there are a lot of other 
cardiovascular and non-cardiovascular issues with obesity. And uh, you see it as well with the adults. You know, our diet and lifestyles are not really ideal in Trinidad. Mm. We have, um, you know, just, you know, simply we there's all these fast food outlets. You know, there's a high rate of uh, basically adult population that uh, takes up smoking. Uh, we have, we lead, you know, probably not to what we truly believe, but there's a high rate of sedentary lifestyles as well. Um, you know, we have this culture of that we've inculcated that, you know, we don't eat right, we don't exercise well, and we, you know... We stay up late. Correct. We yes, sleep, absolutely. Yeah. We stay up late. And, and you know, there, there are studies that pretty much look at all of these things, and they show that, you know, even if you stay up late, you tend to snack more, it tends to lead to weight gain, and obviously the health issues that associated with that, that are, you know, pretty much certain, a certainty of it happening. Right. Um, I know that you, yep, sorry, you, sure. you briefly talked about um, diet. Uh, what, yes. as Trinis, what about our diet that needs to be improved? I mean, when you have, and you said it a little while ago, when you have food like doubles and, you know, Christmas time when you have the pastels and the ham and pork and all of these different things, how do we adapt our diet to improve our heart health? You know, it's it's a very uh, important point. And, you know, as I tell yeah. a lot of my patients, you know, if it usually tastes good, uh, then it's probably too good to be true in terms of, uh, no, you know, for don't example, say that. Don't you, say that. You, you know, for example, you have your fried chicken, you have your uh, pizza, you have your doubles, you have, you know, pretty much, chocolate. you know, all these chocolate. Well, chocolate, uh, we can get there in a bit, but okay. chocolate is probably the least culprit uh, of all of these offenders. But I'm glad respect to, to that. that. <laughs> I'm yeah, and, and it needs it. to be really dark chocolate, right? Mm -hmm. So I just completed a study on dark chocolate. But just to simply yeah. answer your question, for example, our sodium intake is too high. So on average, uh, worldwide, an average person consumes about 11 grams of sodium a day. So they show that medically, this should really be about four to five grams. So we are consuming almost twice as much sodium as we should. Sodium is implicated in hypertension and stiffer coronary arteries as well as throughout your entire body it's called the vasculature right which is the arterial tree of all your arteries disseminated throughout your body um, in terms of a cholesterol you have to decrease your saturated fats decreasing your saturated fats pretty much uh, you have to decrease or increase your lean meat consumption so a lot of our fats that we consume are really fatty acid um uh, unhealthy fats, which are saturated fats, and they're not rich in the basically essential um, fatty acids that we require. Um, carbohydrates, uh, there are a ton of carbohydrates, and basically our cosmopolitan uh, culinary um, profile in Trinidad and Tobago, there's both you know Afro-Trinidadian food and Indo-Trinidadian food. There's laden with heavy carbs, as well as these saturated oils, as well as increased sodium. Um, sugar content, for example, it's a common misconception that, you know, coconut water is healthy. Coconut water, as I actually just recently told my parents, is very 
not healthy. It's very unhealthy. You know, the sugar consumption or content of coconut water in a glass, a simple glass of coconut water is pretty high because it contains a lot of different types of carbohydrates such as sucrose and fructose that, uh, you know, will skyrocket your blood sugar. I'm, I'm when you sorry. Skyrocket I, your... I'm, I'm not accepting the coconut water thing. I thought that that would be the best first quencher, seeing as it's right around the savannah. After I do my exercise, I drink a good coconut water. Don't tell me I'm unhealthy. Well, Are you serious? Well, well I'm, I'm sorry. To, well, you know, I mean, obviously everything in moderation, right? right. Uh, okay. For example, but... But, you know, for really patients who have what you call brittle diabetes, which is diabetes where the blood sugars are, you know, essentially very high one minute and then they drop abysmally low mm -hmm. or critically low another, you know, those types of patients should stay away from these, you know, foods that can cause labile sugars, means that they're widely fluctuating and they're di very difficult to achieve uh, control. Mm -hmm. uh, then, for example, you have, you know, with water consumption, so obviously we recommend a water. So in most patients, not patients with heart failure, but you should probably drink uh, six glasses of water per day, less than if you have kidney issues and less if you have really severe heart issues. So there's a lot of different specific things that we have to go through. But, you know, with the hustle and bustle and vagaries of life, it's difficult to really follow these patterns strictly you know these instructions uh, this medical advice you know it's sometimes it's unreasonable doesn't seem if it's you know practical mm -hmm. in our setting to do these things you know it's you know and i see it pretty much on a daily basis there will be patients will come in they'll be like, you know doc we just came to my office and they would have eat two three doubles but i think you know it's it's overarching to say that we really need to establish you know, that credo, that concept of everything in moderation. We're not saying that you can't. We're just saying that you have to have everything balanced. All right? All right. And so, I just have to interrupt you here slightly as we take a commercial break. And when we come back, we will find out more about diet and how we're going to moderate a good taste in coconut water and doubles. Right? <laughs> On 106.5 FM, Freedom 106.5 FM. All right, and we are going back to the doctor right now, Dr. Citran. Yes. I yes, I have another question for you. Uh, it, we just spoke about diet, and we were trying to wrap our minds around, you know, um, some of our favorite foods that may not be as, you know, good for us, and we have to do everything in moderation. Um, what about uh, herbal introductions, meaning uh, taking... Long, you know, long time they used to say garlic was a good idea for heart health to reduce your pressure. How about using foods as medicine? Okay, so that's, uh, you know, if you int really interest, uh, opened up an interesting conversation there, and it's really a Pandora's box. Um, so most herbal uh, supplements, uh, I would strongly advise caution with, for example, uh, a lot of these supplements aren't really FDA approved. Um, and for example, the natural quantities that you'd find in food, they would not really make an impact on your cardiovascular health. So for example, let me give you two examples. Uh, so when I was young, uh, in high school, 
uh, you know, at that time they were saying that, you know, garlic is really good. Mm-hmm. It can lower your cholesterol. And as you mentioned, your blood pressure. And that is fine. But for that to really be achievable naturally uh, with respect to food, you need to pretty much eat an entire clove of garlic. Not a clove, but an entire garlic. Well, the 12 cloves, the head, the which head, is not really okay. practical. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Uh, I don't cook, so I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure familiar with it too. But for example, yeah. So, you know, that's not something that, you know, is really practical to institute in your dietary routine every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, another example is cinnamon. So cinnamon is considered to be a natural blood thinner. And yes, it does have certain effects where it can thin the blood. But you need to have almost 20 teaspoons of cinnamon. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's not in really... one day? If you try to... Cons- yeah, in one day on a daily basis. So these things aren't really practical you know there's no one that's going to do 20 teaspoons of cinnamon across distributed across three meals a day mm-hmm. um now segueing into a different conversation which is are these are uh, good in terms of you know buying it over the counter supplements and the general answer that we provide is that a lot of these supplements so you can buy the cinnamon in a pill or you can buy the garlic in a pill there are tons of you know, presentations across by all these different companies. Um, and these supplements or these herbal supplements, you know, there's uh, I, there's so many. They're innumerable to mention. Uh, Ashwin Grande and all these different types. Mm-hmm. They are not FDA regulated. So a lot of these companies, they do this uh, where they're marketing and they're very good in marketing. And, you know, they really convince the population at large that, they're okay and safe to consume. They actually reduce or decrease your chances of complications or even death from cardiovascular disease or even cancers. Um, and the issue is that a lot of it is not, you know, it's pure marketing mm-hmm. and there's not really any truth or science behind it. So, for example, I personally you will not really recommend herbal supplements unless they've been fully FDA approved or tested and you know there are a lot of loopholes with that but there you know it seems to be like trinidad it's um flush with them you you pretty much get almost every single type uh that's available uh throughout the country throughout the length and breadth of the country so it's something you have to really be careful with because a lot of these supplements are also very expensive Mm -hmm. and you know they can take away the focus from the actual medications that that really put in the hard work or the hard miles and getting you better. So there seems to be a fixation with the population where they rather try a natural alternative or herbal alternative and thinking that it's a natural process, but sometimes it can end up harming you more than it can benefit you. I think um, that uh, tendency to think that natural would work it stems from the uh, side effects of the drugs that are uh, prescribed for heart health. Um, do you see uh, uh, a way that we can, what can we do to actually reduce those side effects? That's that's the question I want to ask. All right. So that's a good question. So, um, for example, with respect to the side effects, it's, I think it's important to say first and foremost that uh, a lot of these side effects are in the vast minority. And you have to look at the overall risk-benefit analysis. So, for example... I'll give you one that that really comes across almost on a daily basis that I encounter in practice. So one is with statin drugs. So statin drugs are things like simvastatin, 
a tovastatin and a rosuvastatin. And everyone, all the patients, they come, they have, you know, all these, they've done their research on Google, um, on Wikipedia, and they come and they're like, doc, you know, this drug can cause diabetes, it can cause dementia, it can cause liver and kidney injury. And the chances of those things happening are almost negligible. It's it's really low. It's like one in 100,000 to one in a million. So that means if everyone in Trinidad took a statin drug, there would be one to two patients that would have these really adverse or deleterious side effects, mm-hmm. right? Obviously, nobody wants to be that person, myself included. Mm-hmm. However, there are studies to show that if you take the statins and you've had heart attacks, a statin can reduce your chance of a heart attack by almost 40 to 50%. And that's just that one drug, right? There, a lot of cardiac patients need to be on a cocktail out of four or five drugs. Um, so if one drug can reduce your chances of a future heart attack, or stroke by 50%, you know, why not take it? It's reducing, you know, something that can be a fatal event, a serious or life-threatening or life-altering event by 50%. And, you know, the population at large, most patients are concerned about a one in a million chance. And we saw that phenomenon with the COVID vaccine, all right? But pretty much other than the pandemic that just uh, basically uh, occurred, you know, we were seeing this almost on a daily basis of encountering this issue of why, you know, how to cater or counter these side effects. What I would recommend is that, you know, there's a, a rule that I learned from my mentors in the U.S. is in for most drugs, we should start low and go slow. So what that means is you start at a low dose and you slowly up titrate it or increment it to where it needs to be. So, for example, you don't do a rapid uptitration or start the patient on a large or high-potency dose. You start slow and you gradually escalate until you need to be where you need to be. So I think um, that's one principle that we can look at. Um, it's very important. Obviously, education. The issue is that, uh, you know, there's so many cardiac patients throughout the country um, that maybe patient education is not being done in an ideal setting where you can have pretty much a 20-minute conversation or 30-minute conversation with a patient to explain these concepts. And then you also have to, rec- you know, understand and be cognizant that, you know, patients are prone to external influences, their neighbors, their families, their friends, who are basically each in their own right, their own personal doctor and, and giving suggestions and advice. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's hard to... Uh, overcome that barrier um, of how to explain the benefits and you know versus the side effects of certain drugs uh, most of the drugs too um, you have to be careful that you know where they're coming from um, so that's a separate issue that I won't delve into but you know generally we do a good job I think in Trinidad of having you know the the real genuine authentic drugs here and I think you know, it's something that we could probably do a little better in instituting of starting low and going slow of of these medications. For example, aspirin. There's a, a serious aversion to a simple drug as aspirin. Now, I'm not saying that everyone should listen to me and take an aspirin uh, by all means. Not at all. I'm saying that. You have to actually visit your practitioner and determine whether or not its benefits outweighs its risk in your particular setting or scenario. But you know, a lot of patients, you know, flat out refuse to take aspirin. Like, you know, it's a blood thinner, it tins my blood. I pricked myself on um, 
I couldn't stop bleeding. So sometimes you get these um, stories, um, you know, of how the side effects are really affecting the patients. But I think some, some of them are overestimating the side effects and the severity and the frequency. Okay. Um, the next question I have for you, what are the activities I should avoid once I've been diagnosed with heart issues? So, so that's really good, um, you know, and pretty much heart disease afflicts almost everyone in terms of age profile, ethnicity. And my general rule of thumb, which really follows the international recommendations and guidelines, is that cardio uh, aerobic activity is probably the best. So aerobic fitness. Um, so, for example, they show that just doing simple minute, like 30 minutes, um, at three miles per hour on a treadmill is pretty good. Obviously, not everyone has access to a treadmill. So sometimes we tell them, you know, to do 30 minutes of brisk walking in, you know, their nearby Savannah or track. Um, and that is pretty much all you need to maintain cardiovascular fitness um, in terms of how it helps improve. Now, there's a key concept here. When you exercise as a heart patient, it doesn't improve your heart function per se. What it does, it improves your ability of your other muscles, so your arm muscles, your leg muscles, to extract and utilize the oxygen at a greater efficiency. So that, you know, people, I think they, when they do exercise, they think, okay, this is going to boost my heart. It's going to improve my, my heart function. Um, and the answer is it's, that's not really true. It really improves how your other muscles use, access, and utilize that, extract the oxygen. So it makes your body more efficient in, um, you know, metab metabolizing the oxygen. Um, so 30 minutes um, every day, three miles an hour if you have a treadmill, uh, which is really, if you think of it, three miles an hour and you're doing 30 minutes, it's one and a half miles. Or if you don't have access to a treadmill, just 30 minutes of brisk walking across uh, your Savannah or your nearby neighborhood track. Um, so that's what we recommend. There's another concept too that is very predominant and pervasive in the population that you know uh, patients think more more is better with exercise. So they think if they exercise more, they would gain uh, more benefit. And the truth and the fact is that is not really the case. So, you know, say some patients will be like, Doc, you know, I I walked five miles today. And while I encourage, you know, obviously the exercise and improving exercise capacity, doing five miles a day is not really granting you any further benefit than if you just did the one and a half miles at a medium to brisk pace. So there those different nuances and subtleties with respect to exercise advice for heart patients. Um, you know, as I said, you know, when someone, for example, ran, ran or runs a marathon, it's not really improving their heart function per se after the first 30 minutes. It's for more competition or for sport, but it's not really, you know, improving their heart function. In fact, there are quite a, quite a lot of cases. If you over-exercise, it can lead to more serious or adverse effects on the heart or cardiovascular system. So again, it goes back to this credo of everything in moderation. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I would say 30 minutes if you're a heart patient, 
low to medium intensity if you're a high risk case, medium intensity if you're a, a low risk case, for example. So, for example, I did the treadmill yesterday. You know, I stick by my guns, 30 minutes, or three miles an hour. And then, you know, if you want to follow it up with light weights, um, there are new studies that show that, you know, that combination of aerobic activity, light weights, or even uh, yoga, right? So yoga and a lot of the cardiology studies worldwide shows to have a lot of um, benefit built on the mental aspect as well as the physical aspect. You know, I don't know if there are many yoga studios in Trinidad or practitioners. Uh, there seems to be a paucity just from, you know, looking through social media. But it's something that has really been shown to be effective for cardiac patients in terms of their cardiac rehabilitation. All right. That is intense. I always thought that the more exercise you do, the healthier your heart and your cardiovascular system, lungs, everything would be, you know, intact. And you just explained that, you know, you don't have to exert or go over half an hour. You know, I, I thought you uh, you can go to like a CrossFit. I'm thinking CrossFit, aerobics. You go to the gym for about an hour. You know, you do your 5K and so on and, and you're healthy. You know, um, yeah, I'm surprised. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, with respect to CrossFit, um, you know, and spin class, it, mm -hmm. it seems to be another culprit. I, I, if especially if you're caught it now, if you're fine and healthy, you have no medical issues, fine, you can have at it, right? You can, you know, speak to your gym and trainer, instructor, and but if you remember, you're in a different category or stratification if you're a cardiac patient. Mm -hmm. And the issue with spin class and CrossFit is that pretty much it. It causes too much of a drastic elevation in your heart rate and your blood pressures, which is obviously not ideal for somebody who has a compromised heart function. So I, I personally never recommend CrossFit or spin class, which is you know highly vigorous and intense training for cardiac patients. You know, as I said, you know, some sometimes it's a little bit of the turtle and the, uh, the tortoise and the hare, uh, you know, parable, which mm -hmm. is pretty much, you know, slow and steady wins the race here. And that is overarching what I would recommend, that, that recommendation. All right. And thank you so much for spending time with us, Dr. Sicharan. We have to close off here. I was hoping to take one phone call, but uh, that person left me before I can get on to talk to you. But in recognition of World Heart Day, thank you so much for coming on and telling us about how we can improve our heart health and some of the things that we need to look out for. Absolutely. Thank you. It was, uh, had, it was such a pleasure to be here. So I appreciate it very much. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining us.